Noah's flood is one of the most discussed and depicted biblical accounts. Most of us learned about it to varying degrees of accuracy as children, and it's been uh, depicted in countless ways uh, through art and media. Uh, Many of you have seen children's Bibles that try to navigate the challenge of explaining some of this gravity. I have a couple pictures I'm going to show you this morning. Uh, that that, uh, describe how Noah's flood has been depicted in the past. The first one uh, is one that is similar to something that some of you have probably seen in a in a children's Bible or storybook. These concerningly joyful animals uh, with their their heads popped out of a cramped boat. Uh, These sort of cartoon versions of the story are often accompanied by uh, questionable theology and oversimplified lessons that we can draw from the story. Uh, But then there's another genre of of art that has taken aim at depicting the events of the flood. The second picture is a a painting uh, by Caspar Memberger, uh, the Swiss artist born around 1555. Uh, Memberger painted a series of, of five works depicting the flood. And in this painting, we see in the upper left hand corner, the the ark. Uh, And then everywhere else is uh, total devastation. Bodies piled on top of bodies that were left over from the floodwaters. Uh, Obviously, this second depiction is a little more realistic than the first. Uh, Bodies strewn about, death everywhere. Uh, There are a couple of challenges when it comes to, to reading and thinking about a passage like we come to today. It's a passage that we've become very accustomed to hearing about. And maybe chief among those challenges is the the, the natural assumptions, the unspoken assumptions that we make because of our familiarity uh, with passages like this. Uh, For our text today, uh, we're going to reflect on the entire flood account. Because I think it's it's important to see uh, this as a whole. And so I'm going to be reading... Uh, select passages from from Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8, and and sort of stringing them uh, together today. It might be helpful to have a a paper copy of the Bible. There are some uh, under the chair in front of you if you don't have one with you today, uh, and and so that you can follow along uh, as we work through these three uh, chapters. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 6. I typically have you stand, but it is a longer uh, passage today, so I'm going to allow you to stay uh, seated, but I will uh, remind you, as I do each week, that uh, this is God's word to us. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And then jumping forward to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And then skipping forward to Genesis chapter 7, verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. And then again, stepping forward to Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Let's pray. God, we believe that your word is true. We ask that you would give us soft and repentant hearts to hear and to receive from you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the flood really is the, the preeminent event in the story of redemption between the fall of mankind in the garden and the exodus. I think most of us, as I mentioned earlier, are familiar to some degree with the flood account, especially with the mechanics of the flood, the logistics of the flood. If I surveyed you, many of you could relay uh, many of the details of the timeline, the major pieces of the story, about the ark being built, about the length of time. Many of you could probably give me uh, even a brief overview of what it means. But oftentimes that's where we, that's where we struggle. We, we grasp the tangible elements, but we struggle a little bit with expressing the meaning and the theology of the flood. 
So for today, I want to discuss the flood account from, from two perspectives. First, we'll look at uh, two things we learn about Noah, and then three things that we learn about God. So what do we learn about Noah? First, that Noah believed God's word. I want to draw your attention to verse 5 of chapter 7. Verse 5 of chapter 7 says, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. There are several places in these three chapters where we see the trust and the obedience of Noah expressed clearly. It's important not to misread what the text is saying, and I dealt with this to some degree last week. Much like we, we, we mentioned, Noah's walking with the Lord in our text last week, Noah's obedience, Noah's believing the Lord, what was a product of God's grace, of God's favor to him, not that which earned God's favor. And, and so when scripture speaks of, of Noah doing all that the Lord commanded him, or when it speaks of him as righteous and blameless, we don't assume that that means that Noah achieved some kind of, of superhuman level of obedience. If that's your perspective, uh, just wait until next week, uh, and, uh, and your opinion of Noah will certainly change. Uh, Noah was, and we'll see uh, next week, was certainly a sinner. But he had faith in the promises of God. Noah believed that God, uh, that, that God was uh, true to his word. And so on account of faith, he was righteous and blameless and forgiven in the sight of God. And Noah believed God's word. He believed in things yet unseen. This was not an easy task. God calls Noah to, to do something that most of us would call crazy or ridiculous. But we see over and over that Noah just simply believed what God said. Now we might be tempted to think that Noah had some uh, robust spiritual gift of faith. But I think it's so important that we realize that Noah's obedience is a product of daily believing the word of God. Daily choosing to follow the word over his own heart, over his own logic, over the pleading of some of his friends, over his own desire for comfort. Noah's choice to believe the word of God stands in, in contrast to Adam and Eve, for example, who chose not to believe God's word. Stands in contrast to, to Cain, whom, whom God himself warned that, that sin was crouching outside his door waiting to attack. But Cain didn't believe the Lord. He did his own thing. This is such a fundamental question for us to wrestle with. Do you believe the word of the Lord? And I don't mean in a generic sense. I mean as it relates to everyday life, your illogical shipbuilding call that God has placed on your life? Do you believe the word of the Lord enough to say no to the things that, that this world elevates as most important? To embrace the things that God says are most important? Do you, do you believe the word of the Lord enough to, to live generously in a selfish world? To live sacrificially in a self-focused society? Do you believe the word of the Lord enough to live as if eternity is really real? 
This is not a one-time declaration that's made one day in the past. But believing the word of the Lord, believing what God has said is a daily effort. It's going back to the cross each and every day. Believing what God has said to be true about you. And then embracing what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Noah believed God's word. The second thing we see is that Noah was a faithful prophet. Now one thing you might have noticed is is that the account in Genesis doesn't mention Noah actually preaching. Uh, But many of the depictions that you see will include this. Noah preaching to the people around him, calling them to repent. We we don't see that in Genesis. Uh, We actually rely on Peter's description of Noah in 2 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Peter describes Noah and he calls him a preacher of righteousness. Hebrews also mentions that Noah's ark building uh, served in and of itself as as, as a proclamation of judgment, of condemnation on all those who saw it. Can you imagine the verbal beating that Noah and his family took during the time that he was building the ark? We don't know exactly how long it took to build, but we can assume that it was a a long period of time in the middle of a desert. There's an important lesson here for us when it comes to what it means to be faithful in fulfilling God's call in our lives. The, The success of our lives, the success of ministry especially, is not measured by results. If Noah's success as a prophet, as a preacher, were measured by his ability to persuade and convince his neighbors, if it were measured by the number of people who supported his ministry, who joined his his cause, Noah was an utter failure. It was him and his family. How much he preached, how much he pleaded with his neighbors, we don't know. But but we do know that any preaching, any pleading, any convincing yielded no converts. If measured by numbers, Noah failed. But of course we know that's not true. Here we are, thousands of years later, telling his story. Admiring his persistence, his patience, his faithfulness to the Lord. If you think about it, Noah is really the first hero of the faith that we see in the scriptures. You could maybe argue that that Abel was a hero of the faith. He brought the sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord, but his story was, was cut drastically short. There's just really a few verses in the scriptures that speak of him. Other than that, he's, he's basically forgotten. If you read the passage that I, that I skipped over a couple weeks ago, you might argue that Enoch uh, was a hero of the faith. But again, we don't know much about him and we don't hear much about him. But Noah plays a significant and profound role in the redemptive story. He, he was in many ways, and our text speaks to this, a new Adam. The one through whom God would repopulate the earth. Did you hear some of that original creation language? Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. That's language that we heard at at the first creation. Noah was, in many ways, a new, more faithful Adam. 
Noah was faithful to the Lord. When it comes to ministry, we, we aren't called to manufacture the outcome, but to be faithful as we carry out the work that God has called us to. Trusting that he is the one who's responsible for bringing about the results, bringing about the growth. But what does it look like for you to be, to be faithful to the calling that God has placed in your life? That's an important question for each of us to, to wrestle with. What does it look like for me to be faithful in that which God has placed me? God has given each of us a unique vocation. You are not called to do all of the things that I do, and I'm not called to do all of the things that you do, but God desires faithfulness as we build our arcs, as we labor in the vocations to which he has called us and appointed us. Noah believed God's word, and he was faithful in what God had called him to do. Now let's turn our attention to, to what the flood account tells us about God. The first thing we see is that God is the judge of sin and sinners. You might notice some consistent themes in chapters, especially 3 through 11 of Genesis. Uh, throughout this, through that span of chapters, uh, we, we cover, as I mentioned last week and I'll mention again, we cover at least a thousand years, if not more, in that span of time. Uh, what's interesting is how consistent the themes are from chapter 3 when sin enters the picture until sort of the end of this first section of Genesis in chapter 11. The, 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 The sinfulness of mankind and God's response to it really is the overriding theme of that section. It's so helpful for us to understand. Almost all Old Testament scholars draw a dividing line after chapter 11 of Genesis. So chapter 12, we get into Abraham and his family. Uh, before that, a lot of people refer to, the, to, to Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as the, the primeval era of Genesis. It, it's establishing the foundation. It's, it, it's building the basic structure and outline. Uh, and we have a few select stories, a few hand-picked stories. There was a lot that happened in that window of time that isn't related to us. But we have a few hand-picked stories, a few specific individuals who are mentioned in those chapters. A little bit of perspective here that I think is helpful. There are 299 verses in Genesis 1 through 11. 299 verses. Uh, Compare that, for example, with Paul's epistle to the Romans. 433 verses. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is essentially the same size as the Old Testament book of Ezra. Uh, But think about the difference. Genesis 1 through 11 covers thousands of years and gives us essentially the entire foundation of our faith. It it establishes God as the creator and ruler, mankind as made in his image. It reveals sin, human sin. It, 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 It reveals the entire notion of the sacrificial system, which is obviously so meaningful for the redemptive story. It sets up this idea of blessing and cursing that we'll see throughout the scriptures. It it covers this much ground in way less verses than Paul used to correct the bad theology of the Corinthians. What does this mean? This this means that when, 
when such a foundational portion of Scripture revisits the same idea over and over again, that idea is really important. And that's exactly what we see in our text for today. Genesis chapter 7, verse 4 says, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. We, we set up the entire notion of why God is doing here what he is doing last week in our, in our text. And today we see God doing what he said he would do. God's words to Noah after the flood was over. Chapter 8, verse 21 are, are so important here. Listen to what God says after the flood is over. He says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. It's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Those are strong words from God. This is such a powerful and, and condemning verse. Human beings are thoroughly sinful. Sin has worked its way into our DNA, corrupting every part of our existence. And if you disagree, show me one element of society. Show me one social institution that is not in shambles, that has not been so drastically affected by human sin. You can't find one. It doesn't exist. For understandable reasons, many people take issue with the account of the flood. How could a loving God do something like this? And almost always that perspective and those questions flow out of a, a low and inadequate and unbiblical view of human sin. We must look at the the affront and the offense that sin is to a holy God who created us. And suddenly we'll see the reality that he is not a short-fused warmonger, but instead unbelievably patient with those whom he created to love him and instead chose to hate him and to pervert and destroy his creation. If we have a biblically informed view of sin, if we allow God to establish our understanding of sin rather than human logic, the flood is not offensive. It's quite expected. God sends the flood as a judgment against sin and against sinners, against those who were enemies of him. And what we can't miss in the flood account is that this event is really a precursor, right? It, it, it's, it's a precursor of the true and full judgment that will come one day. God establishes himself as the judge of sin and sinners. And that's true even when it makes us uncomfortable. The second thing that we see and understand about God is that God is the savior of those who are trusting in him. Chapter 7, verse 23 says, Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the air. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. 
The ark is such a significant image for us. The means of salvation. That means of God's grace for Noah and his family. God saved all who were trusting in him. And that's the promise of God for us as well. Peter draws such a profound connection. He, he really interprets the flood event for us on this side of the cross. In our scripture reading uh, from earlier, chapter 3, verse 21 of 1 Peter, he says this, he says, In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Uh, Peter says that for you and I, the flood account has much greater meaning than just being part of the ancient history of our faith. The flood means much more than just a reminder of God's wrath and judgment against sin. Peter says the flood is a sign, it's a, it's a symbol, it points our eyes forward to baptism. Just as the, the flood cleansed the earth of sin, Peter says uh, baptism, uh, in, in, ver in verse 8, uh, it says people were brought safely through the water and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. In our baptism, our, our sinful nature is, is drowned and we are raised, Paul says, to walk in the newness of life. Noah's flood was a flood of wrath, a flood of judgment. And Peter says baptism is a flood of grace, a flood of God's mercy. God is the Savior of all who trust in Him, of all who have faith in Him. And it was true in the days of Noah, and it's true today. It's easy to look at the flood story and to focus on the destruction, to focus on the bodies, even to focus on the ark or the animals. But Peter says, Peter says no. Peter says the focus of the flood is on God's saving the focus of the flood is on God, a God who, who washes and saves and delivers. And that brings us to the third thing that we learn about God in our text, and that that's uh, that God makes promises. Chapter 8, verse 21. says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. You know, there's some debate about how long Noah and his family were, were on the ark. It depends on how you do the math, uh, how you understand, for example, that 150 days and how that's uh, conveyed to us. Was there some overlapping? It really doesn't matter all that much other than to say they were on the ark for a long time. Uh, nonetheless, they eventually make their way off of the ark safely, just like God had promised. And we walk away from this account of Noah and the flood with a profound understanding that our God is a God who makes promises and who keeps his promises. I love verse 24 of chapter 7. Those three simple words, but profound words. They're words that should be underlined in your Bible. But God remembered. God remembers his promises. God is good for his word. 
And we see in this passage that God makes a covenant. It's what we might call a a unilateral covenant, a one-way covenant in which God declares these promises that he will never again flood the earth. And this is such a significant moment. He made clear his judgment against sin. The flood is God drawing a line in the sand in establishing himself as the true and right judge against sin and sinners. And now in, uh, in our text for today, in the form of this covenant, this promise that he made, God declares that he is pursuing a different solution for humanity's sin. Chapter 9, verse 11. He says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said this, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God placed in the sky this beautiful sign that forever reminds us that that God is making peace with mankind. It declares that God's covenant is, is one of grace in which he will rescue all who believe from sin and death. God remembers his promises. And he gives us reminders of his promises. And that really is the lesson and the hope for you and I. That God is a God who is true to his promise. And so we hold on to the word and the promises of God. He promises to save all who believe and trust in him. He promises that in your baptism, your your old nature was drowned and you were raised to walk in the newness of life. He declares, he promises that by faith you are not an enemy destined for destruction, but a child of the promise, included in his family by his grace. And so we hold on to his word, and we hold on to his promises because they are true. We live in daily repentance, recognizing that our old sinful nature tries to drag its way back into our lives. It needs to be crucified again at the cross. We hold on to his word and his promises, and and we rest. We rest because we know that even when we feel like we can't hold on, that God holds on to us. That God is not sitting today with his finger on the nuclear button waiting to destroy everything again. Instead, he sent his son to redeem the world. He sent the full force, the full measure of his wrathful flood upon his son on the cross in our place so that we instead might live. Church, hold on to his word and his promises. As I close today, I want you to hear this promise from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live our lives in fear of God's judgment against sin. Because Christ was judged for you. Because we are in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we confess that you are the rightful judge of sin and of us as sinners. That as your word says, you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. And so we rejoice today that there is one who took the judgment that we deserve. That there is one who paid the debt that I owe. We're grateful for the assurance, for the reminder today that there is no condemnation, no flood, no judgment for those who are in Christ. That the judgment has been handed down already. That the flood has been poured out on Jesus at Calvary. That we are forgiven and justified and declared righteous, not of our own work, but purely on account of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so give us strength to hold on to your word and your promises, to believe your word, to live faithfully trusting in your word. And when we feel like we can't hold on, God, we're so grateful that you hold on to us. Give us faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.